And then the other guy forgot to buy a cake. I already did that, by the way. I just do it out of habit. <laughs> but the Ooh, other guy... Satisfying spike from the cracks. One guy forgot to order a cake. It was bad. The other guy made his bride's wedding dress. Um, like, he wanted to have a horror... Don't ignore them. Um, he wanted <laughs> to have a, like, murder theme, like a murder mystery themed that wedding. That would be us. Yeah, but he put bloody handprints on the bride's dress. No! And so she tried it on, like, three days before the actual wedding. And she was like, what the fuck is this? What was this called again? It's called Don't Tell the Bride. <laughs> Please binge watch it. I might. With me. Because, <laughs> like, I don't work this Saturday. All I have to do Saturday Ooh. is go to Muay Thai in the morning, and then I have the rest of the day off. It's my hand. Why are you taking a picture of your hand? Don't judge me. Are you just happy that you have acrylics? Yes. Okay. Mm. Okay, anyway. You want to know what happened to me at the doctor's today? Oh, yes, please. Um, do tell. I went. Oh, are we actually recording? Yeah, we're actually recording. Oh, now. do you want to introduce you yeah, yourself let, first? Yeah, let's do that first. Hi, I'm Aria. I'm Alex. And this is As, as Long As It's Spooky. Okay. So, back to your story about the doctor. Sorry, we introduce ourselves at the worst times possible. We just, we go on tangents, and I just record it. Um, I... Went to get my thyroid check. Mm-hmm. Excuse you. Um, sirs, I went to get my thyroid check because that's something that runs in my family. Like, to talk testosterone can really fuck yeah. with other things in your body. And I'm filling out paperwork because I just, I turned 18 on the 16th. Um, if you're not aware and like newly fresh and legal. But <laughs> I had to refill out all those paperwork and bullshit like that because I'm no longer a minor. And I think mm-hmm. someone's home. Um, oh, here, do you want to pause then? Yeah. Okay. So, signing paperwork. I hear my dead name being called, which, for those who are unaware of trans lingo, a dead name is essentially the name that's written on your birth certificate before you change it into your actual name, like the one your parents mm-hmm. give you. Um, I hear my dead name being called, and I go up and I'm like, Hi, yes, that is me. Hello, can I help you? I'm still filling paperwork. And the, the nurse is like, who are you here to see? And I'm like, oh, Rachel, who's my doctor? And she's like, I'm calling a two-year-old. And I just was like, oh, okay, thanks, bye. And I turn around, and the two-year-old with her mother is just standing there. And her mom gives me a look. And I'm like, I'm sorry, we share the same name. Maybe name your child something different. <laughs> And the thing is, is you're Den, Den, Dead, Dead, Dead name, Dead, Dead name. <laughs> Your Dead name. I don't, I don't know why. That was a really hard day it, it for you. It was hard for me. I can't process things. Like it's 
It's a popular name. Is it? I work in a school. Okay, you're, you know best. Motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I have, like, I always hear that name. So, in general, I feel like if you name your kid something... Semi-popular. Semi-popular standard. It's like a... Um, you can't be offended when people don't, like, when people think it's them. <laughs> yeah, and the doctor, the nurse should have used our last name anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway. At least you're not, like, there's, like, one lady who, um, named her child, like, something that has, like, almost a thousand letters. How would you even fit that on the birth certificate? They had to make a custom one for her that's two feet long. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's awful. This child had to memorize her name. That's terrible. Why would you do that? My dad thought my name was too long for me to learn how to write when I was younger. Like, what do you think the people with the same name before me did? (laughs) He had no faith in his children. uh... He didn't teach us Spanish. And he didn't believe I would be able to write my name. (sighs) Parents. Can you write your name now? Yes. Are you sure? Sometimes. Oh, okay. Anyway, you want to introduce the topic since you're starting today. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> so, I will introduce the topic also with a little disclaimer. Um, so, our topic today is bombers slash bombs. Bomb-related things. Now, I know that this is a very touchy subject for some people. Um, and it originally wasn't my first idea, um, but I ended up having to go to a presentation done by the bomb squad and they showed a video of a certain case that I'm going to talk about. And I was like, that would make a good episode, especially since one of my friends somehow had never heard of this case. Most of you, shout out to you, Shelby. (laughs) Most of you will probably know this case. It has a couple different names, the one that I'm going to share. Okay. So, I start, right? Yes, and um, also another part of the disclaimer. We make fun of the perpetrators of the crime, but not the victims. And all of the people I'm going to be talking about are deceased. Yeah. So, we mean no disrespect to any family members. But at the same time, if your family member causes a terrorist action, they deserve to be made fun of. That's just my onion. Your onion? My onion. Okay. Because there's many layers to that complicated circle. If you want to discuss that with him, go ahead. I'm not going to bother. Yeah, (laughs) DM me on Instagram. There's two of them. Good luck. So, I'm going to talk about the case of Brian Douglas Wells, otherwise known by many names like the Pizza Bomber, or... What I like to call it, and what I've mostly heard it called, the collar bomber. Now, when I say collar, I don't mean like, oh, phone call, hello. Like, I mean like his actual, he had a collar on that had a bomb. Kinky. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. That was, (laughs) you know, 
just locker room talk. Anyway, so <laughs> this topic has been covered by a lot of different people, a lot of different ways. There's a Netflix series about it called Evil Genius. Oh, is it? Is that what that is about? Yeah. I haven't watched it I yet. I know, right? It, you wouldn't expect it at first. So it's one of, this is one of the cases that like really, it's a rabbit hole. Like it honestly makes no sense. I feel like anything I could come up with would make more sense than what actually happened. Cheers. I was drinking to that, bro. So this happened on the 28th of August in 2003. Um, Isn't that when we start school? I think so. This happened in Erie, Pennsylvania, and it is considered to be one of the most bizarre crimes ever in American history. Fun and exciting. So, the events begin with a 46-year-old pizza delivery man named Brian Douglas Wells, who calmly walks into a PNC bank in the town and demands that they give him twenty-five thousand. I mean. $250,000. $250,000. That's a bit different. That's not $25,000. $250,000. But what is particularly unusual about this robbery is that Wells, who is also carrying what appears to be a cane, has a large bulge underneath his T-shirt, which um, witnesses described like having, he had a shoebox almost underneath his shirt is what it looked like. Oh. Um. And his shirt said, guess on it, like written in Sharpie. Um, <laughs> That's the weirdest thing to write onto a shirt. Really? Um, he hands a note to the cashier demanding the money and states that the device around his neck is, in fact, a bomb. The cashier tells him that they don't have the amount of money in the bank, and she instead hands him a bag just containing $8,702. That's probably true because banks have to ca- carry a certain amount of money. Exactly. They can't... They- Carry a limited amount specifically for reasons like that. Mm-hmm. Wells seems satisfied with this and leaves the bank, gets into his car, and drives off. Everything about him is cool, calm, and collected. Just a few moments later, he stops, gets out of his car, and collects what appears to be another note from beneath a rock. Which, this note, was in a McDonald's parking lot by the drive through sign in a fa- flower bed. <laughs> Very, very elusive. Exactly. Top 10 sleuth moments. (laughs) But soon the Pennsylvania state troopers are on to him and surround the car. They force Wells onto the ground and proceed to handcuff his hands behind his back. Here is where the story takes an even more extraordinary twist. Wells begins to relate, uh, (laughs) retell... Relate? What? Okay. Anyway, I'm going to say... is a proper word to use there. I know, but I don't like it. Um, It's not my notes. Okay, shut up. Um, Wells begins to retell um, a bizarre tale to the police. Wells, who has no criminal record, tells the officers that he has been forced to carry out the robbery after being taken into hostage by three black men while driving a pizza to an address just a few miles from where the Mamma Mia pizzeria where he worked so mamma mia i got a bomb so that's a picture of the bomb you've probably seen a picture of it i actually haven't oh you haven't that looks like a torture device um it's a lot it works a lot like a handcuff yeah but for the neck and so the explosive was i'll get into that okay so um he says that they held him at gunpoint, attached the bomb around his neck, and then instructed him to carry out the robbery. If he succeeds, he lives. But if he fails, the bomb will explode after 15 minutes. But something about this man doesn't quite add up. 
Despite his ins- insistence to the officers that the bomb will explode at any moment, Will seems completely at ease with the situation. Is the bomb actually real? Wells, it seems, may think that the bomb is fake. But the truth is about to be revealed. At 3.18 p.m., the device starts to emit a loud beeping noise, which grows steadily faster. It is at this point that Wells, for the first time, appears to become agitated. Just seconds later, the device explodes, killing Wells. All right. So... Already, just got started. it's a very weird case. So later, the FBI, find, the FBI finds a set of complex notes in Wells' car, which reveals that he had just 55 minutes to complete a series of tasks, including bank robbery before the device explode, exploded. Upon the completion of each task, Wells was given more time before the device would explode. And this may seem like, oh, well, obviously it's what he said. He got, like, beaten up by all these guys and they forced it on him to have him put out this robbery. Mm-hmm. But. Sorry, I was texting my dad. Um, Back up. Yeah, go. The actual story that, well, some of it is not 100%. However, there are culprits. There's some sort of answer. However, Wells is ultimately decided to have transpired in on the robbery that killed him. Okay. So, Wells, together with Kenneth Barnes, William Rothstein, Rothstein, and Marjorie Del Armstrong, had plotted to rob the bank. The purpose of the plot was to raise enough money for Barnes to kill Del to kill someone for Del Armstrong. But I'm gonna tell a bit more of the story before I get into that. So Oh, she y'all, she put down her phone, she clapped her hands together. It's time for her teacher side <laughs> to come out right now. So this case is something that I personally have been very, very interested for a very long time. Because it's so bizarre and weird the way that it happened and the more details that came out about the case the more shocking and weird it was i mean you have to keep in mind that this whole robbery was caught on national television they televised this and they didn't know it was going to explode they televised his death the bomb went off oh fuck and they have the video of it. I can show you later if you would like to see. <laughs> if you literally, if you look up Collar Bomber, you can find that video. Wait, it's not restricted? Oh, no, it's not gory. They oh. don't show the aftermath. Like, they don't zoom in on anything. It just pretty much looks like you hear the bang and you just see him fall backwards. And you see some stuff, some parts of his shirt go up. Okay. You don't actually see what happened. Usually when, like, someone dies on live television, they restrict those videos for, like, forever. Or, like, in terms of crime videos. (laughs) These ones aren't restricted. Okay. So, let's go back a bit. So, Wells receives the call. And what happens is he goes to this um, address. It's not far from where he works at the pizzeria. And so, he actually was about to get off 
of his shift, and he offered to drive. That sucks. So he was like, oh, no, I'll take this order. And so he started driving. He got there, and it was a a radio station, not a house. So he gets there, and no one really knows what happens when he got there. There's a lot of speculation about what happened, but no one knows for sure. They did find his footprints and his um, exact car, like tire marks. But they have no way of knowing what happened when he actually got there. Okay. So you have that. Then he leaves the house, goes with the bomb. He now has a bomb strapped to his neck and a new T-shirt that says guess on it that his family members confirmed he has never owned that t-shirt so then he goes to the bank robs it he actually leaves so calmly and like he has so they tell him in the letter to go to the bank rob it with the weapon he was provided which was a cane a shotgun disguised as a cane okay so he walks in And they actually end up saying, so I think it was Aubrey or Audrey. I don't remember. I'm going to say Aubrey. Aubrey is like a bank code for we're being robbed. Mm -hmm. So like the bankers would go, oh, Aubrey. Because it sounds like it might be someone saying that they're calling over. Yeah. And if I think it's better that you don't know the actual code so people don't know it. Yeah. Everyone knows it, though. So it's kind of dumb. Well, it's like. It's public knowledge. <laughs> anyway, okay. but... Um, Sorry for being an idiot. <laughs> no, I didn't learn it until I got more into this case because they like they say all the details because you're going to need all the details. Mm-hmm. So he goes in, he starts robbing the bank, and someone who was actually a witness and was in the bank at the time said that one of the tellers told a customer, like, told the customers, like, please leave. This might be a dangerous situation. We don't want you to get hurt or yeah. hurt hostage. And he let, Wells let all of the people who were customers leave. All of them. Didn't bat an eye at them. He didn't care. He literally walked out of this bank with a dum-dum in his mouth. (laughs) A (laughs) dum-dum. So, like, he was so calm and collected this whole time. So then he gets his other note, goes to find the next note when the police surround him. And they handcuff him put him on the ground and he says that he has a bomb but he's so calm and all of the police officers were very confused by how calm he was yeah because like if you have a bomb strapped around your neck like you're going to be freaking out you'll be more you'll be more panicked for sure Mm -hmm. and i mean he was asking he was like are you guys gonna send someone to come take this off of me why hasn't anyone tried to take this off yet Oh. Like, stuff like that. Like, he would ask stuff like that, but he was very calm about it until mm-hmm. it started beeping. Yeah, and then That's that when freaked he freaked him out. out when it exploded. Obviously. Because the police called the bomb squad, and they just hadn't arrived yet. And when the bomb squad got there, they um, took it off and realized that there was only one explosive, so all this stuff happened. So, now we're going to skip in time a little bit. How far in time? Not very far. Just a, I want to say a few months. Maybe not even a few months. So, 
Remember those three names that I said earlier? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about William. William, William Rothstein. He ends up calling the police and saying, help, I found a body in the freezer. Now, this call is very weird for a few reasons. First of all, the body that's in the freezer is in his house. Okay. (laughs) Second of all, he helped put it there. (laughs) So he turned himself in. Yes and no. He didn't kill the person. But so he's considered a co-conspirator of the crime, so he technically did. He was just helping head the body, and he said for more information on who killed the person that he would like he would be completely honest about it. Okay. If they didn't if they made his sentence shorter. Okay. So one so, of those situations. Yes. So what happened? The police got there. The body was of Marjorie Arms. Dill Armstrong's last ex-boyfriend. And he claimed that Marjorie had shot him and that she needed him to keep the body in the freezer. Which, you know, friends. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will definitely keep a body in my freezer for you. And that didn't, the body in the freezer didn't seem to bug him. What bugged him most was the fact that <laughs> this, um, that Marjorie wanted him to throw this frozen body of her ex-boyfriend into an ice chopper so they could dispose of evidence. And he was like, no, Marjorie. No, that's too far, Marjorie. It's too far. Too far, Marjorie. And so he ended up calling the police, turning her in. And he said that he felt so guilty about hiding this body that it was like slowly eating away at him that he actually wrote a suicide note. Okay. Now, the reason I'm going to bring up this note is because they found it in his house. And in the note, it said, um, this is not connected to the Wells case. Okay. Which. (laughs) So they're just out here committing multiple crimes at once? Unprovoked. The fact that he brings it up is very weird. Especially. Confesses. To another crime while confessing to helping hide a body in his suicide note because he was so distraught over having to get rid of the evidence of this body. Am I following this correctly? So this bot, this ex-boyfriend, completely different than Wells. Okay. Wells is a different person. Yeah. Wells' case, completely different. Ex-boyfriend, shot. She asks him to hide the body in his freezer. Mm-hmm. He says yes. It eats away at him. He writes a suicide note, puts it in his drawer. The first line is, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Jesus. Okay. So, obviously, it's like it's like having a house for sale and then putting a sign that says, this house is not haunted. <laughs> I think some states, they have to do that. <laughs> but it's like, why would you Why would you even bring that up? It's like, I, th- I think it is haunted. No one asked about that. Anyway, so they end up going in and researching, like, questioning Marjorie. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, really, yeah. she's now a suspicious character. They go in, For her sure. house is a complete disaster. Don't be suspicious. It's like, has rotting food, dog feces everywhere. Oh, it's, gross. It's a disgusting house. Okay. It's a disgusting house. So, they end up going in, and... 
They research a bit more about Marjorie. Marjorie has had a history of ex-boyfriends showing up dead. Um, she admitted to killing one of them. Um, well, two of them, actually, because the one she shot that she had. And she hasn't been arrested before? Not for murder. Because the thing is, is they couldn't prove that some of them were her. One of her ex-boyfriends hit his head on the table and died, broke his neck and died. One hung himself. Another shot him. Another got shot by her. Well, two got shot by her. Okay. If you include this new ex-boyfriend. Oh, so wait, she already shot a man previously. Did they consider it like an accident? They can. They didn't know about this ex-boyfriend until she said something about it. Oh, my God. Okay. So you have all of this violence in Marjorie's past, which when you match it with the pro, like the personality they wanted to put with the collar bomber is very interesting because they say whoever made the collar bomb has to be very, very confident, have a history of violence, all this stuff. The one thing she didn't have was a like the ability to make such a bomb mm-hmm. because they decided that this bomb was homemade, however, professionally made. This is where... So like someone who knew how to construct bombs did it. This is where Rothstein comes in again. Like a chemistry teacher. He was actually an engineer. And he had access to all of this stuff. And he actually taught at a school, too. He taught engineering at schools. Um, so he had access to all of the equipment necessary to mm. build such a bomb. Now, I don't know if they necessarily found the exact things in his possession, but he had the ability to. Now, that leaves one person that I haven't talked about. And that is... William, I mean, Kenneth Barnes. Kenneth Barnes seemed at first to not be any, like, remotely even close to either of these people. But he started bragging about this case. Of course, there's always that one asshole who can't keep his mouth shut. And he was like, oh, look, holler bomb incident. And stuff like that. And he claimed that they shot, that Marjorie shot her ex-boyfriend because he was going to tell about the collar bomb case. Now, Kenneth was fishing partners with Marjorie. They used to go fishing all the time. Okay. And she told him many times about how she wanted to kill her father. Okay. Kenneth offered to do it for her okay, okay. for a sum of money. Toit. So... It all comes full circle. circle they commit it. the crime, get someone to rob a bank. They take the money. She gives it to Kenneth so that Kenneth can go kill her dad. However, Wells is actually in on it. The guy who was made rob, who they made rob the bank and who ultimately died. How did he get involved with them? Like so, how did, I, you're about to explain. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it said there's not a direct connection that leads the two, the two of them together. However, the two of who Wells and um, Wells and Marjorie. Okay. However, Wells was talking about the crime before it happened. 
Okay. And was like, had like was dropping hints that it might happen. Also, he seemed so calm during the whole thing. What people think happened is that they conspired together. They told Wells, hey, like, you robbed the bank for us. We'll make it look like it was a whole, like, planned scheme thing. And, like, you have a bomb on. We'll, like, we'll make it look like you're just a victim. Mm-hmm. And we will split the money with you. This is what people think, by the way. There's no hard, solid evidence and that this is the case. And they can't ever know because they're all dead. Yeah. Wait. Oh, you'll, you'll tell me how they died later. Yes. So, um, <laughs> so they believe that Wells was in on it and that he didn't realize it was an actual bomb until it started beeping, that he just thought it was a fake bomb, that he didn't realize that his own life was actually at risk mm. and that Marjorie was going to just take the money from him and leave him for dead. One less body to deal with. What a bitch. So... Now we have the whole thing. So they, so how Wells got dragged in, actually, I forgot this part. Thank goodness my research has it. So Barnes, so Kenneth Barnes had drawn Wells into the plot because he knew him through a prostitute. Is that what... I sometimes you hear these true crime stories and you're like, is this is this real life? Yeah, so. we really are in the bad simulation, aren't we? <laughs> so to get all these corrections straight, so you have Kenneth Barnes. Uh huh. Marjorie knows him because they used to fish together. Yeah, and he is going to kill Marjorie's father. Barnes also knows Wells because um, he knows the prostitute that he hooks up with. William Rothstein only knows Marjorie because they are friends. Mm -hmm. And so Marjorie now has a connection with all three of these men through circumstances. Marjorie knows how to network. You have to give her props for that. Yes. um, So... Rothstein, um, Rothstein died of natural causes in 2003 and as such was never charged. In December 2008, Barnes was sentenced to 45 years in prison for conspiring to rob a bank and for aiding in the plotting and execution of a crime. Due to bipolar disorder and ruling that she was unfit to stand trial, Deal Armstrong was not sent down until February 2011. She was sentenced to life plus 30 years for armed bank robbery and the using of a destructive device in a crime. So, like, the crime itself happened in 2003, right? Yes. So it took them that long to get all of those charges put together? That kind of sucks ass. Yes. So, um, another interesting thing that I forgot to mention is another reason people suspect Wells is because... There is no proof that any black men harassed him. No one else noticed this and also just how calm he was. Mm -hmm. And so if you look up this um, crime, honestly, 
so much comes up. If you even just look up Brian Wells, it comes up. I highly suggest watching Evil Genius. It's really, really interesting. It goes a bit more into Marjorie's history mm-hmm. than I can go into right now. Because they have all those resources and yeah. we're just two teenagers with a And laptop. they actually <laughs> interviewed her. Like this guy who helped make it had so many conversations with her where she was so verbally abusive to him. Oh. Like it is actually insane. And like even if you look at like some of the things that like the notes are so cryptic and have like pictures drawn in of where to go. Oh, wow. So they really had it planned out. Yeah. And they think that there were more notes, but they took them away. Like, once they realized the police had him surrounded, that they were like, oh, shit, we can't have him. Yeah. They, to our hideout. they got rid of the evidence. Yeah. Or, like I said, Wells might have been involved, and mm-hmm. he, they were just supposed to take the money and leave him. But all of this stuff is online. I know BuzzFeed Unsolved did an episode on it. Yeah. I started to watch the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode, but I have this habit of falling asleep to BuzzFeed Unsolved because I find they're... Like Shane's voice and Ryan's voice is soothing. <laughs> and I fall asleep to podcasts as well. I, I just, if people talk and I fall asleep, that's how I work. But anyway, so that's the very confusing case that I didn't really describe that well of the color bomber. It's very confusing. It honestly can go on forever and no one's really sure what happened. <laughs> okay. And it's kind of one of those things where we know that all four of them were somehow connected and involved. Well, except for Wells. So all three of them were kind of connected and involved, but we also don't. And they all died of natural causes. So there's no way for us to find out and get definitive, like, them saying, we did it. (laughs) Persephone's down in the underworld and she's like, I know all of the juicy gossip about the collar bombing situation, guys. (laughs) All of it. But yeah. So I'll show you the video later. But yeah. Look up. Honestly, it's such an interesting case. Mm -hmm. So now it's your turn. It is my turn. Thank you. Yeah, we have to share one mic today because I came here from a doctor's appointment like I was saying earlier. Um, So I did the Unabomber. It's a pretty popular case. I mean, it's one of those cases because, first of all, there was a 17, like, 17, I think it was a month or weeks. I don't know. There was a, I'll get into it later. It's in my notes. But right now, off the top of my head, I can't remember it because I'm a dummy. But there was a long ass, like, witch hunt for him by the FBI. And um, I'm going to give a very concise lessened version of the Unabomber because there's so much that goes into this case that it would take me so long. It will take more than one episode to do that and we don't have time to record more than one episode right now, (laughs) which is actually why we changed subjects from what we were originally going to do. But, all right. Let's do the Unabomber. So Unabomber is a nickname that was given to an American domestic terrorist, Ted Kaczynski. Uh, He conducted a 17-year, so I was correct, a 17-year series of attacks using mail bombs to target academics, business executives, and other people. The um, The Unabomber bombing campaign killed three people and injured 23 in total. 
started in the late 1970s and continued until he was caught in the 19 in 1996 following a nationwide manhunt led by the FBI. His capture marked the end of the FBI's longest and most expensive manhunt. So that's like the Unabomber, first of all, is famous because of his plans. Um, his manifesto, a lot of people read it and some people are like, that's actually not bad ideas. He just had an incorrect way of implementing them. I've personally never read it, so I can't hold an opinion about it. But apparently he was very articulate. Uh, he was he went to Harvard and then there was a 17 year long manhunt. So this case just has so much going into it because this like he was considered basically some sort of a genius in a way. And sorry, that's discord. So Kaczynski lived as a recluse in a, re a remote cabin without electricity or running water outside of Lincoln, Montana since 1971. And he authored a 35,000 word manifesto entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. In it, he argued that technology had led human beings away from nature and toward what he called surrogate activities such as popular entertainment and sports. He called for human beings to return to what he described as wild nature. In his view, this included an end to all scientific research. After he sent his manifesto to multiple newspapers and television stations in the form of letters, he vowed to stop his attacks if it was published in full in a major newspaper. Both the New York Times and the Washington Post published a manifesto in its entirety in September 1995. Uh, Kaczynski was arrested seven months later in April 1996, nearly a year to day after his last admitted bombing. So he did like actually a stop because they got they published his manifesto. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the thing about publishing what these dangerous and violent people like send to newspapers, like for instance, the Zodiac Killer, is that you never know if they're actually going to follow through because they could just send it to you and you could publish it. And what you could really just be doing is giving them more publicity and making them more famous and giving them more attention, which is what a lot of them want. And then as a result, because they realize they're getting that attention, they're going to continue with their crimes. But And you also have some that are fake honestly yeah there are some that people will do crazy stuff for their 30 seconds of fame yeah for real and but it seems like this i don't know he was a weird man <sighs> so he his full name theodore uh he was theodore theodore <laughs> he was born in chicago in 1942 to a working class family of polish ancestry he was one of two children, along with a younger brother, David, who would later become involved in his older sibling's arrest. Um, people who attended school with Ted noted that he was a loner who excelled academically. He graduated early from Evergreen Park Community High School. He had skipped the 11th grade, and he was accepted at Harvard University on full scholarship at the age of 16. While at the Ivy League school, Kaczynski didn't make many friends, but he continued to perform exceedingly well academically. I wish. Sorry. I know. I wish I got a full ride. <laughs> However, it was during his time at Harvard that Kaczynski also participated in a controversial study led by psychologist Henry Murray. 
In the experiment, subjects were asked to write an essay on their personal um, philosophies. Later, while hooked up to electrodes to measure their physiological response, the study subjects were subject. Um, wow, the study subjects were subject subjected to hours of insults and personal attacks. Uh, the essays were used as a basis for those insults. So they would look at their core beliefs and then they would turn around and turn that against them, essentially <laughs> abusing them. It's believed that he participated in this experiment for more than 200 hours, lasting for three years in the beginning of 1959. And like anyone else, his men mental and emotional well-being suffered because he's going underneath such constant abuse. Um, He still graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in mathematics in 1962, and he would later earn a master's degree in 1964 and a doctorate in 1967 in the same subject from the University of Michigan. After completing his education at fucking 25, Kaczynski became the youngest assistant professor in history at the University of California at Berkeley when he was hired to teach undergraduate geometry and calculus in the fall of 1967. However, he resigned without providing a a reason two years later. And I'm assuming two years later, 1969, this is probably began when he started to get those, like, his manifesto believes that they should move away from research and all those things. And that's probably when he became even more reclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so after leaving Berkeley, he returned to Illinois to live with his parents for two years before moving to a cabin he had built in the woods outside Lincoln, Montana in 1971. So exactly what you said. Exactly much. what I said. But just in case you wanted mm-hmm. to know where he went for those two years <laughs> um, before fucking off in a cabin. With very little money, Kaziski hoped to survive self-sufficiently by teaching himself survival skills such as hunting and organic farming. He also worked odd jobs in the area and received some financial support from his family. By 1975, though, he had become disturbed by the enroachment of real estate and industrial development in the area around his home. Influenced by the writings of French Christian anarchist philosopher Jacques Ellum, Kaczynski began vandalizing construction sites in the Lincoln area in an effort to sabotage the um, development. And that was kind of the start of his criminal history. And the weird thing is, um, that's something I might do as a person. And it's kind of weird to see that belief reflected in someone else who took it to an extreme side because I do disagree with the amount of, like, the way that real estate and like industrial complexes and all those things kind of just overtake nature because our earth is already pretty much destroyed. But the reason why I'm upset about that is because I firmly believe in the core nature energy and in the world and shit like that, you know, the whole woo-woo beliefs I have. Um, I'm going to scoot over. I'm not going to bomb shit. I'm just a green (laughs) witch who wants to protect the earth. It's just, I mean, I get it. Anarchy's also an adventure that I've been looking at, but like, besides the point, he was completely off his rocker. So Kaczynski began using mail bombs sent via the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, sometimes he hand-delivered them, you know, like a special delivery. Oh, how special. I know. Uh, in a series of coordinated attacks over a period of 17 years beginning in 1978, his first target was a Northwestern University professor of engineering Buckley Christ. He escaped injury when a package with his return address was found in a parking lot outside his office building. And 
quote-unquote, returned to him. He alerted security, noting that he had not sent the package. A security guard opened the package and suffered a hand injury when the bomb inside exploded. It's unclear why he, like, consistently targeted the professor. At the time, he was, again, living in Illinois and working with his father and brother. Kaczynski was fired from that from that job for insulting a female supervisor with whom he had briefly had a romantic relationship with. Over the next seven years, Kaczynski sent, sent, Kaczynski sent nine homemade pipe bombs to multiple targets, including executives at American and United Airlines and academic administrators. He injured several people, and some of them ended up having serious injuries that resulted in his death. In December 1985, a bomb was sent to Sacramento computer store owner Hugh Scrutton, and it exploded and caused his death. It was the first fatality attributed to Kaczynski. In all, the so-called Unabomber, as he had by then become known, committed 14 acts involving 16 bombs, killing three and injuring another 23. His last attack was on April 24, 1995, also in Sacramento, and he killed timber industry lobbyist Gilbert Murray. So by then, the FBI was already hot on his trail. Based on similarities, based on similarities of the devices used in the attacks, they had already linked many of them and attributed them to one perpetrator or a group mm-hmm. of perpetrators. They also believed that the attacker had connections to the Chicago area and the San Francisco Bay, which was completely correct. Mm-hmm. The FBI called its un- ongoing investigation the Unabomb for a university and airline bomber, and the media-, media thus dubbed the attacker the Unabomber. Still, Kaczynski's identity was unknown to authorities, and there's this famous police sketch of him. Yeah. And it, like, He's someone, like, with a very strong jaw. He has, like, aviators on, a hood up, and, like, curly hair. Um, he kind of looks like someone that you want to stay away with. He weirdly reminds me of Dale Gribble from King of the Hill. But I th- Oh. But I think it might just be, like, the sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but... And- See, my thing I was always confused about... I don't know if this comes up later because I don't know too much about him... Um, but is there anything that like links or like any reasons why he chose the specific people that he did? I don't think there was a reason aside from the fact that they all seem to be connected to the industrial world in some way. Um, like the specific people he targeted, there was like no real reason for like that specific person. Yeah. I don't think it was like that specific person. I think he was just trying to get people who were hot shots. And if someone else knows something way more than I do, because of course my information can be lacking and flawed. I am a person, I have faults. Be free to totally hit us up about that. But yeah, as far as I know, there's no, like he, he, he didn't, like I think he was more like looking down the yellow pages of who was in like, pretty successful in these sort of industries. And he was like, I'm going to attack that person to send a message. So uh, the, yep. Thank you. (laughs) That be, uh, his unknown identity began to change after he sent his now infamous manifesto to the media. In the summer of 1995, Kaczynski sent letters demanding that his essay titled industrial society and its future be published 
And if it wasn't, he, of course, threatened to commit more attacks. Eventually, U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director Louis Free agreed that the manifesto should be published, although this was a controversial decision. The writings advocated for an ideology that opposes technology and counter-ideal of nature. In fact, Kinsey argued that technology in an industrialized society effectively destroys human freedom because it needs to regulate human behavior closely in order to function, which is going a bit too far. In my opinion, I see nothing wrong with technology. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, critics and academics would later write that while Kinsey deserved scorn for the violent acts he committed, many of his manifesto's ideas were quite reasonable. Mm-hmm. So, David Kaczynski was his younger brother. The Manifesto's ideas were also familiar to his younger brother, and he harbored suspicions already that his brother was Dina Bomber by the time he read the Manifesto after it was published in September 1995. By then, the two brothers had become estranged, and so David, fearing no retaliation from Mm -hmm. his brother went to the FBI with his suspicions and shared with them the letters he had received from Ted over the years. Investigators were able to compare the typewritten letters to the pages of the original manifesto, and linguistic analysis later confirmed that the documents were most likely written by the same author. And, um... Sorry, I had another word. (laughs) I think nowadays, like, linguists, like, using the languages and handwriting tends to get a bit wishy-washy yeah because it's really not that hard to copy the way someone speaks or writes on paper Mm -hmm. but like at the time you know it was pretty solid and if it's like a hundred percent connection you can't really deny that there's a very high chance it was written by the same person Mm -hmm. and at least puts that person as a suspect yeah. So David asked the FBI to keep his role in the Vietnam. David had asked the FBI to keep his role in the investigation a secret, but the information was leaked to Dan Rather, then of CBS News, and I don't think they know who the mole is, but you know, there's always a mole. Mm-hmm. So the you know, so April third, nineteen ninety six, after having a search warrant for the Elder Kaczynski's cabin, authorized by a federal judge in Montana, FBI officers descended upon the rural compound. There, they found Kaczynski in a disheveled state, surrounded by bomb-making tools and parts. Later that month, he was indicted by a federal grand jury on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, and three counts of murder. Although his attorneys wanted him to enter an insanity plea, Kaczynski refused and instead pleaded guilty to all charges. He remained incarcerated, serving eight life sentences with no chance of parole at the Supermax Security Prison in Florence, Colorado, which I've actually passed. And there's a sign oh near the prison that says, do not pick up hitchhikers. I wonder why. I wonder why. So while in prison, Kinsiski has written and published two books, Technical, Technological Slavery, The Collected Writings of Theodore J. Kinsiski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, and and anti-tech revolution why and how both of which expand on the ideas included in his original manifesto it's honestly kind of weird that he's like oh you know i'm gonna use the unabomber title now to write my books about how you should give up technology and it's (laughs) i mean he might as well if he's doing nothing with his time 
Um, fun fact, um, many of the options of his bombs and, like, the things he had in his cabin were auctioned off in 2011, garnering about $190,000 for his victims and their family members. So none of it went to profit. But, you know, still. It's still kind of messed up. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, he actually... Like, here... We have some money for for you guys. I mean, it was made by selling the parts of his bombs that could have killed you, but you know, or killed your family members. But here, so um, he, he actually did attempt suicide in his jail cell in early 1998, and it resulted in a psychiatric evaluation, which I think now is considered a standard thing mm-hmm. to do to most prisoners. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and as a result, he was offered a plea bargain, and it allowed him to avoid the death penalty. So that's why he accepted eight life sentences without the possibility of parole. And Alcatraz of the Rockies? Yeah, it's considered the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Jeez. I, I don't know anything about the prison itself, so I don't know if it's actually comparable, but I'm assuming it's considered that way because it's so hard to get out of. Mm hmm. So, like I said, he spent a lot of his time in prison writing books. Um, the past 20 years, he is oddly socially connected in prison. He struck up friendships with eerily similar fellow ADX prisoner mates, the Oklahoma bo- City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, who I actually almost covered, and 1993 World Trade Center bomber, Yamzi Yosef. Kaczynski also writes letters to thousands of pen pals on the outside, this daily human contact. Are you okay? You're like losing your shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm like, oh my gosh, you bombed someone too. Me too. I love. Do you think that's how they bond? They're like, hey, so like, how'd you make your bombs? Oh, I did this. And they're like, like, oh, really? That's so cool. This technique might have been easier for you. Like, oh, I didn't think about that. Thank you, good sir, for teaching <laughs> just me how to make a bomb. Like bonding <laughs> and everyone being like. I mean, they Why can't. Why are we letting them talk to each other? They can't get out, and they don't have any access to those supplies. So it's weird because he's a lot more social in prison than he was in real life. Uh, he was a former recluse and survivalist who literally lived out in the woods in the middle of bumfuck Montana. Um, he has adapted well to his 12 by 7 foot prison cell, which oh. actually isn't much smaller than his cabin, which was 12 by 10 feet. <laughs> and <laughs> so his cabin in his entirety is housed in the museum in Washington, D.C. on loan from the FBI as part of the Inside Today's FBI expo- um, exhibit. And I kind of want to go see it because... I went to the museum back in eighth grade, and it was one of my favorite museums. I think just because they have, like, pieces of the Berlin Wall there, and it's just a very cool museum to look at. So today, um, he, he's, like, reaches out to media from his bars regularly. Like, he, he speaks about his, um, his time spent in the Harvard study, and he describes it as the worst experience of his life. And I I mean, it's probably part of the reason why he ended up where he is today, and especially because he was so young, because he started college at fucking 16 years old. <laughs> so perhaps in his old way, Kaczynski indicating that 
him being on Harvard is like in 2012 to the 50th because uh, at the time in 2012, the 50th reunion of his class in 1962. <laughs> uh, like, fuck. Where was I going? I did not read that sentence. He had but... a class, his 50th class reunion of the class of 1962. Um, yes. Okay. Got together. Yeah. They got together and he listed his occupation as prisoner. And he stated that his eighth life sentences were his awards. Um, he's also remained animate in the last 20 years that he is not mentally ill. And he reaches out to followers around the world sharing letters and stories. So he is infamous. And there are people who follow his beliefs. I don't, I hope they don't follow, you know, his method. But he is considered in his own way, a genius. I mean, he had an IQ of a... He has an IQ of 167. Yeah, like, he's smart. I'll he's smart. That. Yeah, he's very smart. And I'm sure I he, just don't agree with his methods. Like, I can understand, like, the whole, like, yeah, industry's kind of taking over, but... Yeah. Yeah. I can understand his fundamental core beliefs and where they come from, especially as a person who cares about nature and the natural world. But you don't bomb shit. <laughs> you don't bomb people. You don't kill people. Let that be the lesson of today. Don't bomb, bomb shit. <laughs> like, as long as it's spooky, don't bomb shit. That will be our first merchandise. To, to No, that will get you in trouble. Yeah. I mean, you're saying don't. Yeah, but like if you even mention the word bomb in an airport, for instance, you're like automatically suspicious. <laughs> then don't kill people. <laughs> <laughs> don't kill people for your insane ideas. Thank you and good night. Boom. Boom. Alrighty. So please follow us on social media. Um, we have an Instagram and a Twitter. Our username is A L A I S Pod on Instagram. There's a dot in between dot pod yeah yeah dot pod and then on and on in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on twitter it is a l a s podcast or pod i honestly cannot remember for the life of me I'm you'll so find sorry. it you'll find it it's there and please dm us your um dm us your stories anything honestly. email us as well as as long as it's spooky at gmail.com spelled exactly the same way as it is in our name mm-hmm. um we are hoping to tell some stories soon of people who have spooky occurrences in their life also let us know if you want us to make a youtube account what you would like to see on there because we're trying to come up with stuff yeah i mean we have some ideas so far but not a whole lot and honestly, we do this mostly for you guys. We do. We do. Also, it's, it's a chance fun. for us to bullshit together about this stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, keep it spooky, my dudes. Stay spooky. Stay safe. Bye. Goodbye. This has been as long as it's spooky. Goodbye. I don't know why. Hey, Alex here. Thank you.
for listening to S Awesome and Eve with Ari and myself. We are under Instagram as A L A I S dot podcast, and we are also on Twitter as A L A I S podcast. If you or anyone else you know has had a spooky experience, email us the story at asmarsspooky at gmail dot com. And if you're able to, please rate, subscribe, leave a review. Any traction that we can get is good enough for us. Thanks.